We live in an era of uninformed claims about Jesus. So here's uh, some recent examples. Uh, new atheist uh, Victor Stenger in his book The New Atheism uh, argues that Jesus probably didn't exist. Uh, Richard Dawkins in his best-selling book The God Delusion says that the Gospels are works of fiction and the idea of uh, a divine Jesus was according to Dan Brown's novel The Da Vinci Code an innovation decided upon at the Council of Nicaea which happened in 325 AD. Well Archaeology is one of the uh, sciences that is of great interest to apologists where uh, our interests uh, overlap. Archaeology is the, the systematic study of the material remains of past human behaviour uh, and we tend to bracket out from archaeological remains uh, textual uh, remains, although archaeologists will will dig those up. Um, perhaps ar archaeology we would talk about inscriptions on uh, uh, statues or coins and so on, uh, but less about texts on papyri, for example. So let me give you an, an overall argument before we look at some specific cases, as it were. Um, this is an analogy from the philosopher Lydia McGrew in her book Hidden in Plain View uh, and she says this, she says if you sample a loaf of bread on both ends and several points in the middle and find it good it would be curvailing, that is it would be being far too overly sceptical to say that well perhaps just the parts you haven't tasted happen to be the mouldy ones. That is, the more we, we can sample something and test it and, and see that it's good, the more confidence we should have that the bits that we haven't tested yet will also be good. We make that, that inference from the evidence available. And it's like that with archaeology in the Bible. Um, you certainly can't uh, prove everything in the Bible with archaeology, but the more that we find there are things in the Bible that we can independently check with, for example, archaeological discoveries, uh, that gives us uh, an increasing confidence uh, in even those parts of the Bible or the Gospels that we can't independently check in that way. So there's a sort of overall inference going on here as well as arguments in particular instances. Let's look at uh, archaeological evidence under three main categories. Uh, archaeological evidence for historical places, uh, such as cities and particular buildings. Historical people, where we can get evidence of uh, general uh, sort of titles of positions, specific names of people sometimes, people's titles and their rel relationships uh, one to another sometimes. And historical culture. Uh, the historical background, material culture of Jesus' day and even the culture in terms of people's beliefs about Jesus. So we'll look in turn at historical places, historical people and historical culture. Beginning with historical places. 
Uh, let's go right back to the the, uh, the earthly beginnings of Jesus's story and Bethlehem which uh, some skeptics had said uh, didn't exist at the time of Jesus uh, but in 2012 uh, archaeologists uh, dug up uh, this is a very uh, screen filling picture but it's actually of something very small a little clay seal impression about the the, the size of your thumbnail it would be and uh, any uh, Shukron archaeologist says here we can read the word Bethlehem in a clear Hebrew inscription from the first temple period on a, a boule, one of these, that's the, the technical name for one of these clay seal impressions, found in Israel. Uh, it arrived from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, uh, maybe about paying some taxes. Uh, this is the Bethlehem next to Jerusalem uh, referred to uh, in the Bible. Uh, so we know that Bethlehem did exist in the first temple period and we knew that it existed afterwards uh, and therefore it's uh, pretty plausible to say that it existed during uh, Jesus's time as well. But of course uh, Jesus was born in uh, Nazareth, another place that skeptics have raised questions about uh, but in recent years, uh, we've begun dugging up quite a lot of the archaeology of ancient Nazareth. So here's a, a house discovered in 2010, and a quote from the uh, excavation director, uh, Yardena Alexander, uh, saying the discovery is of the utmost importance, since it reveals for the very first time a house from the Jewish village of Nazareth, and thereby sheds light on the way of life at the time of Jesus. The building that we found is small and modest and is most likely typical of the dwellings uh, in Nazareth in that period. And uh, she even says uh, this, uh, this may well have been a place that Jesus and his contemporaries were familiar with. It's a logical uh, suggestion. Capernaum is somewhere where uh, Jesus uses a, a base of operations, uh, mentioned uh, 16 references to Capernaum in the Gospels. In particular, Jesus taught in the, the synagogue there, according to the Gospels of Mark uh, and Luke. And here is a picture of a synagogue in ancient Capernaum. But the... Uh, the, 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 the clearer, lighter coloured stone is of a more recent uh, synagogue, but it seems to have been uh, built upon the foundations. At the bottom there you can see in the darker coloured stone, the black basalt stone uh, seems to be the, uh, the, the foundations of the first century uh, synagogue. Uh, so this is the foundations of the synagogue that Jesus uh, taught in in uh, Capernaum where um, Jesus healed the centurion's servant because of the centurion's faith for example. Peter's house so called is also in Capernaum or the the house of his uh, mother-in-law. Um, this was a sort of series of discoveries really there was the remains of an octagonal fifth century church there and in the 1960s archaeologists discovered the uh, 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 the remains of a fourth century church underneath that fifth century church and then they discovered that that fourth century church had been built around a first century house 
that had clearly been used as a Christian meeting place, they reckon, since around the second half of the first century. And interestingly, uh, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine's mother, Agiria, in the fourth century, had made a, um, a, a, a journey to the, uh, um, the Holy Lands and wrote in her uh, diary that in Capernaum, the house of the Prince of the Apostles, so Peter, has been made into a church with its original walls still standing. It's where the Lord uh, cured uh, the paralytic and uh, in uh, this room in the the house that the church had been built around the walls of that room had been plastered and there were various uh, prayers Christian prayers scratched into uh, the plaster there I see that some people are, are, are raising hands but as I, as, as I said I'm going to do the presentation first and then come to the uh, questions at the end uh, because the presentation is being recorded and we need to make sure that we, we get that uh, down um, but there will be time for um, questions at the end. First century Jerusalem, um, this is of course a, a computer model of first century Jerusalem but we have lots of interesting actual archaeology from first century Jerusalem such as the pool of Bethesda uh, John 5 verses 1 to 15 describes this pool in Jerusalem near the sheep gate uh, surrounded by five covered colonnades and until the 19th century there was no evidence outside of the Gospel of John for the existence of this pool and uh, liberal scholars were minded to think that uh, it was really uh, symbolic uh, that John was really talking about the the five books of the of the Pentateuch or something in the five covered colonnades and so on. It must be symbolic. Uh, but then uh, archaeologists in the 19th century uh, dug up this pool in the spot that the Bible said it should be and discovered that it did indeed have five covered colonnades. In 2004, so much more recent discovery archaeologists stumbled upon the first century ritual pool of Siloam mentioned in John chapter 9 uh, where engineers uncovered uh, ancient steps during some maintenance on some sewage pipes and they they gradually uncovered more and more of these steps and found that these steps surrounded uh, a square uh, ritual bathing pool uh, near the, the mouth of Hezekiah's tunnel, the water at the bottom there, you can see in the picture, comes ultimately from uh, Hezekiah's uh, tunnel. And you can see uh, a picture on the, the bottom right-hand side there of a coin and some of the pottery discovered with the pool and so on. Uh, those are important finds because this is often how archaeologists are able to date the things that they find. It's to do with the style of pottery that's found at that at that level, uh, to do particularly with coins because people tend to put dates on coins and so on. So that's very interesting. Another pool from John's Gospel. Uh, another very recent find: uh, Solomon's uh, portico was the the double colonnade that surrounded the temple built by Herod and in 2017 uh, saw the discovery of a, an ornamental capital from one of these portico columns in the, te the, the temple built by Herod. Um, the capital is kind of the architectural feature in a, in a column that goes between the, the tube of the column and the, the thing that, that's, whose weight it is uh, bearing. 
and you can work out from this uh, capital uh, that uh, the column uh, had a circumference of about 30 uh, inches uh, round at its top. Uh, John 10.23 says that Jesus visited Solomon's portico and the book of Acts says that the early church used it uh, as a meeting place and here we have uh, some remains from that uh, portico. Let's move on to looking at uh, archaeology to do with uh, people uh, in the Gospels and uh, that Jesus uh, knew. So uh, Luke 3 verses 1 and 2 are a very interesting verse because Luke is situating what he's writing about in contemporary history and he mentions a lot of famous names in order to do that. So he says in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the emperor, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod, Herod Tetrarch, that is the governor of a quarter of a province of Galilee, and his brother Philip Tetrarch of Ituria and Traconius, who's mentioned by Josephus in Antiquities, uh, and uh, uh, Licinius Tetrarch of Albany, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son, son of Zechariah, in the desert. So he's mentioning lots of uh, historical uh, people to historically situate the biography of Jesus that he's giving. And we can look to archaeology on many of these names. So here is uh, Tiberius Caesar, uh, a bust of him and a famous uh, uh, Tiberius Denarius coin from 14 to 37 AD, uh, commonly referred to as the tribute penny from the Bible, uh, which shows uh, a portrait of Tiberius uh, Caesar. Uh, the Pontius Pilate inscription uh, discovered uh, a stone that had this inscription on it that had been, had been reused for other purposes, but the inscription was still on it. A Latin inscription from the first century that mentions Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Uh, uh, it seems like uh, Pilate had paid for a, a, a temple uh, to be produced to the glory of Caesar, uh, uh, to Tiberius, so Tiberium, uh, and it talks on this about uh, Tiberium, uh, Tius, Pilatus, Ectus, and you have the sort of bits of the words are missing, but it's very clear uh, that uh, basically this is uh, Pilate saying, you know, I've paid for this temple for you, uh, so please give me brownie points kind of thing. Uh, that was discovered in 1961. Much more recently, in 2018, uh, this ring of a pilot was discovered, uh, a seal ring, so a ring that we, you would use to press into uh, clay to make one of those little boulet uh, seal impressions, uh, excavated uh, at Herodium. Uh, it, it was excavated a lot earlier, but only sort of they, they'd been going through the finds of the excavation and, and recognising what they were and this was discovered therefore in, in the finds that had earlier been excavated uh, and it carries the inscription of Pilates, of Pilate, belonging to Pilate uh, in the Greek letters set around a picture of a wine vessel. Uh, this is the, the, in the Greek it's the, the so-called dative form of the name which would ordinarily be written in, in minuscule letters slightly differently, in different uh, types of letters 
Uh, but this inscription on the corroded copper alloy ring was uh, finally read using quite advanced photographic techniques in order to make out what was on uh, the ring. They, archaeologists reckon this ring was probably not fancy enough to have been worn by Pilate himself, uh, but was rather likely worn by someone authorised to act on Pilate, Pilate's authority. So maybe, uh, you know, Pilate's slave in charge of his uh, procurement of wine or shipments or something like this. And that slave would have would have used a Pilate's seal to make uh, official communications about Pilate's business. Herod uh, the Great, here's a bronze coin of Herod the Great. Uh, one side has a, a, a tripod and a ceremonial, bo ceremonial bowl with an inscription Herod King uh, and the year that the coin was struck, uh, year three of Herod's reign, so this dates to 37 uh, BC. Uh, Israel Professor of Archaeology Echad Netzer in the 1990s discovered some broken pottery in Masada bearing the Latin inscription Herod the Great King of the Jews or King of Judea. Uh, the first find uh, to mention the full title of King Herod as given as given in the Bible. This uh, pottery was part of uh, again a, a jug used to probably transport wine uh, has been dated to around 19 BC. Now Licinius was a, was an interesting conundrum because scholars said look Luke doesn't know what he's talking about here uh, because everybody knew that uh, Licinius wasn't a tetrarch but rather the ruler of a place called Calchas uh, half a century before the time that Luke is writing about. But then later archaeologists discovered an inscription from the time of Tiberius of so 14 to 37 AD which names uh, someone called Licinius as tetrarch in Albia near near Damascus so it turned out that there had been two different government officials in that area uh, who just happened to have the same name and Luke did know what he was talking about uh, after all. Uh, Caiaphas the priest and a tomb located in the south of Jerusalem uh, were discovered several of these so-called ossuaries or bone boxes where the Jews at that time would do the second burial having buried someone later on they would go to the tomb and gather up the bones and put them in these bone boxes or ossuaries um, uh, one of these ossuaries discovered uh, in this particular tomb is one that many historians believe relates to the, the former high priest Caiaphas and his family. You can see how uh, ornate uh, and costly this uh, bone box would have been. And then they, it was traditional to scratch in like, the name of, of who's in there and so on. So on the side and back of the ossuary is inscribed Caiaphas's name. Uh, she is talking about Yosef Bar Caiaphas, the son of uh, Caiaphas. Here's another uh, bone box discovered in 2011 and touted as the, the bone box of John the Baptist uh, discovered in Bulgaria. Um, now if I get the, the name right here, the archaeologist's name is uh, Pop Konstantinov. Pop Konstantinov headed an archaeological team that uncovered a, a reliquary or ancient container for relics 
in which there were eight bone pieces attributed to John the Baptist, although they later in analysis found out that some of them were animal bones, so someone had sort of beefed up the collection at some stage, uh, but some of them were human bones, and this reliquary was found embedded in an altar in the ruins of a monastery on Sveti Island, or John's Island, a small island in the Black Sea uh, in Bulgaria. Uh, Professor Popkonstantinov told the media that he bases his support for the find's authenticity on a Greek inscription found in another box that was found with the reliquary and this inscription said God save your servant Thomas to St John June 24th uh, June 24th being uh, the feast day of St John the Baptist uh, the island's name, the monastery's dedication to St John, the inscription found uh, in the same place with it and so on are all considered supporting evidence. And one might be minded to take this with a grain of salt, particularly since we know that uh, in the medieval reliquies uh, tended to uh, be used as sources of income for monasteries. Uh, and uh, the people would beef up the collection and if you put together all the bones of, of the saints that are meant to be around there you find out they have uh, you know more, more digits or limbs than they should uh, properly have. Uh, however, in this instance, interestingly, uh, they did some carbon dating on the human remains in the box uh, at, at Oxford University and they dated the right-handed knuckle bone uh, found in the box to the middle of the first century AD when John is believed to have lived until his beheading ordered by King Herod uh, so that uh, carbon dating of that particular bone also fits with the suggestion that this is indeed a reliquary of St John the Baptist uh, maybe but this one I think is, we can be more confident about, three additional names mentioned on a particularly significant ossuary. It's a mid-first century AD chalk ossuary that was noticed in uh, a collection in an antique store in 2002. Uh, and of course Hebrew you read from uh, right to left, so the, the inscription uh, here on the box read uh, right to left is uh, Yaakov Bar Yosef Ahud Yeshua, uh, which uh, in other words is uh, James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus. James, son of Joseph, brother of Jesus, which is quite an interesting combination of names to discover from that era. We know from Josephus that James was martyred in Jerusalem in AD 62, uh, about 29 years after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, which would date this ossuary, if it is indeed his ossuary, uh, to sometime around or after AD 63, and this inscription from then as well. Uh, there was some controversy about this find, but a, uh, because it wasn't dug up in situ, um, which raised uh, questions about its authenticity but a 2014 peer-reviewed science paper in the Open Journal of Geology for example supported the authenticity of the ostery and the inscription on it um, the patina, the material that builds up over, over time on the ostery surface 
matched that in the engravings and microfossils in in the in the chalk uh, in the inscription were uh, said to be naturally deposited and to indicate that the full inscription was of the same uh, antiquity uh, as the uh, the chalk box itself here is uh, that paper just the the first and last pages of it if you want to look it up online the authenticity of the james ostery uh, by Rosenfeld uh, et al. in the Open Journal of Geology, 2014, issue number four. Uh, so as Herschel Shanks, who at that time was uh, editor-in-chief of the Biblical Archaeological Review, said he thought this box is more likely the ossuary of James, the brother of Jesus of Nazareth, than not. In my opinion, it's likely that this inscription does mention the James and Joseph and Jesus of the New Testament. So let's move on to our last uh, category of historical culture. I'll give you just one quick example of, of background material culture and then look at a particularly interesting issue about people's beliefs about Jesus, what we can tell from archaeology. So here's a, a first century fishing boat. Uh, in the 1980s, Israel suffered a drought which caused the waters of the Sea of Galilee to recede and two local fishermen who also happened to be amateur archaeologists, fortunately, discovered a boat uh, buried in the mud that had been uh, revealed by the, the drought. It turned out to be a very well-preserved fishing boat from the time of Jesus. The design of the vessel, which measured over 27 feet in length, was apparently typical of fishing boats used during that time in the eastern Mediterranean. Uh, an archaeologist raced against time to recover this boat from the mud before the waters uh, returned and, and made their job a lot more difficult uh, and also to stop it from drying out and so on. It's quite an interesting archaeological story if you want to go and, and research into that. Um, pots and lamps found beside the boat helped to date it to the first century and that was confirmed also by radiocarbon dating of the wooden planks. It's interesting to note that in the back of the boat they found a raised section uh, that seems to comport with the description of, of where Jesus was sleeping uh, on the back of the boat uh, in the story of the calming of the storm. And um, they reckon that the boat could accommodate some 15 people, so there would certainly have been room for Jesus and his 12 disciples uh, in such a boat. Here's a closer-up picture of this boat now in the, in the museum in Israel. So let's look at this issue of beliefs and come back to uh, Dan Brown's popularisation of the theory that uh, during his lifetime Jesus wasn't thought of as, as divine and people didn't actually come to think of him as divine until uh, much later on and Brown puts forward the theory that it, this was something uh, voted on at the Council of Nicaea indeed. He, uh, here's a quote from the, the novel uh, The Da Vinci Code uh, one character to another, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless. Not the son of God? Right, uh, Professor Teabing said, Jesus' establishment of the son of God was officially proposed and voted on by the Council of Nicaea, uh, which is um, historical rubbish, even if it makes for a good uh, conspiracy thriller novel. Um, but we can apply some archaeology to this concept. If I take you to uh, this third century, 
this third century remember the council of nicaea is in the fourth century so third century uh, ad church at uh, dura europos and uh, this is a reconstruction of what the place looked like a teaching area and a courtyard and some steps going up here to a a baptistry and it's the baptistry that we're particularly interested in because it contains some wonderful paintings on the wall of the of this uh, baptistry and here is uh, one of them uh, sorry it's a slightly fuzzy picture but you should be able to make out here we have a person lying on a on a bed and a person carrying a bed and a, and a man in a, and a toga with an outstretched arm standing over this uh, figure in the bed thinking you know what biblical story from the gospels does this put you in mind of and given that this is a, a painting in a house church um, it comes to mind very readily that this is a picture of Jesus healing the paralytic uh, as told for example in Mark chapter 2 um, this painting has been dated to it's the early part of the third century to around 232-ish AD um, this house church is in uh, modern Syria and it's interesting that the, the key point of, talk, of course of this story of Jesus healing the paralytic that this painting is clearly referring to is Jesus's uh, claim to be on a par with God in terms of uh, pronouncing the forgiveness of sins uh, and then he turns to uh, healing the paralytic in his debate with uh, the religious scholars there who are recorded as saying you know he's blaspheming who can forgive sins but God alone uh, so here is a painting that uh, seems to indicate that the people in this third century, early third century church, uh, had a, a view of Jesus that put him on a par with God as far as forgiveness went. Or the picture next to it, uh, folks in a boat here on the water, uh, someone uh, standing on the water, uh, hands outstretched and slightly lower down, uh, seemed to be sort of sinking, his feet beneath the waves, uh, another figure. Um, this is quite clearly, if you know the the gospel story of um, Jesus walking on the water and Peter jumping out of the boat and, and going to him and then uh, uh, losing his nerve, his trust, his faith, and beginning to sink into the water. But also the kind of the point of this story is not just you know Jesus has magical powers to walk on water, but seems to be an enacted parable as many of Jesus's miracles were put this against the Old Testament uh, verse from Job 9.8 for example of uh, talking about God he alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of of the sea so maybe there's a sort of uh, resonance to a divine claim there as well and right above the baptistry pool is this uh, painting of a shepherd carrying a sheep on his shoulders with his flock of sheep uh, as John 10:11 records Jesus saying I am the good shepherd the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep but this was a reference back to the Old Testament uh, Psalm 23 for example talks about the Lord God is my shepherd and uh, Jesus was was taking that imagery and applying it to himself and here in this uh, church right above the baptistry pool is a picture of uh, the good shepherd well, let's go to this uh, even slightly earlier uh, Christian prayer hall or church discovered in the grounds of Megiddo Prison in 2005. 
is a picture reconstructing what it would have looked like a hall with a, a central table for communion in the middle of it and these uh, um, top-down view here uh, of uh, these pictures uh, made out of the little tiny tiles we put the little tiles together uh, to make the, the bigger picture and there's some very interesting uh, things here particularly the fact that the, the fish in uh, one of the pictures uh, the fish uh, because of the Greek word ichthus was an early Christian symbol uh, because they made an, an acrostic that is where you take the the letters of one word and you use each letter of that word as the first letter of a of another word that has meaning uh, so you have ichthus and each of those words in the Greek uh, became the first uh, letters of the phrase Jesus Christos Theos Soter sorry if I've mangled the Greek there um, but which translated into English means Jesus Christ God's Son Saviour so we have this early uh, fish Christian symbol that talks about Jesus not only as Christ but as God's Son uh, but even more significant than that is this inscription here, which I've given you a, a blown up version of here, uh, which uh, talks about someone who had given money to donate uh, to, for the table in the middle of the room. Uh, and it says the God-loving Akeptus has offered uh, the table to God Jesus Christ as a memorial, or to the God Jesus Christ as a memorial. Uh, so here we have uh, in black and white if you like uh, 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 overlined the Greeks didn't underline they, they overlined and it's indeed overlined the, the God Jesus Jesus Christ the uh, famous Alaxaminos graffito which is Latin for graffiti uh, found on a wall in the Palatine Hill district of Rome dated uh, to around about AD 200 uh, and we have here a picture of uh, a donkey-headed uh, human figure on uh, a cross being crucified uh, with uh, another uh, figure looking up at the, the man on the cross raising a hand and the inscription scratched into the plaster here is uh, Alexaminos worships his God or perhaps Alexaminos worship your God uh, so someone making fun of someone who worships someone who had been crucified um, but why the donkey head is it simply you know he's made an ass of himself by getting crucified uh, maybe there's more to it um, historian Tom Holland points out that to Greek scholars the question of what might be found within the holy of holies in the Jewish temple was a tantalizing one because they they weren't allowed to go into the holy of holies as non-Jews uh, Poseidonus, a uh, Greek writer, never knowingly without a theory, says Holland, claims that it was that it contained a golden ass's head. Others believe that it hold, held the stone image of a man with a long beard sitting on a donkey. Um, so there's this sort of tradition of an association of donkey imagery and the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple uh, in uh, Greek thought. Uh, so this donkey imagery being used here in this sort of cartoon making fun of someone uh, might suggest that the god being worshipped here because you worship a god uh, is supposed to be the jewish god but you know a crucified person that someone might be foolish enough to think was the jewish god 
uh, clearly uh, this is Jesus but it also indicates that there were people uh, at this era who considered Jesus to be divine therefore to be indeed the Jewish God and uh, an inscription uh, a rather strange inscription to our ears which seems to be a sort of ancient funereal inscription that might contain uh, a, uh, a sort of blend of Christian and perhaps Gnostic beliefs. It has the uh, the fancy identification name of NCE156, this particular inscription, but it's been dated to the latter half of the second century uh, and uh, is about the earliest Christian material object we uh, possess, uh, says researcher Gregory Snyder uh, from the US in this uh, article in the Live Science website. Um, and this inscription uh, reads as follows in their translation. It says, To my bath, to the brothers of the bridal chamber, carry the torches. Here in our hall they hunger for the true banquets, even whilst praising the Father and glorifying the Son. There, with the Father and the Son, is the only spring and source of truth. Um, but it's particularly interesting this imagery of praising the father and glorifying the son the father and the son in sort of the same uh, breath uh, if you like uh, and uh, one final example of this uh, a slightly controversial example the, the Pompeii Rotas or Satos Square uh, Pompeii of course was destroyed by the volcanic eruption in AD 79 so we can date this pre AD 79 uh, it's found in other Roman places, including Sirencester here in England and Pompeii. It's a Latin palindrome written horizontally and vertically in a, in a square of letters. Um, it, it literally, the spelling has a backwards spelling that, that could be translated as uh, Arepo, the sower holds the plough at work with care. Um, but you can arrange the letters into the shape of a cross with the single letter N, perhaps with the divine name at the center, uh, as it is in the center of the square. And then the words, our father, which is the opening of the, the Lord's Prayer, and the letters alpha and omega uh, at the end, uh, both horizontally and vertically. So you can arrange those letters into this form. Of course, according to Revelation 1.8, Jesus says, I am the alpha and omega who was and who uh, is to come. Uh, the Almighty. Uh, the letters can also be arranged into a prayer uh, that says, I pray to you, Father, I pray to you, Father, you heal. Uh, so the symbolism of these letters is pretty clearly uh, Jewish. Have a look at uh, Isaiah 9 6 or 46 10 and or Christian. Uh, but the fact that you can arrange the letters into the shape of a cross with the beginning of the Lord's Prayer and the Alpha and Omega. Uh, might be taken as being suggestive that this was being used as a, a Christian um, uh, puzzle or way of, 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 of uh, communicating that there's, there are Christians around here just as the, the fish symbol was used perhaps. So here if we put these discoveries on this nice timeline here we take the crucifixion as being about AD 33 on the left there and the Council of Nicaea at 325 AD on the right there we can see we have a spread of finds pointing to people having a divine view of Jesus. The Pompeii Rotus Square would put those beliefs within 50 years of the crucifixion. Uh, 
the NCE inscription within 150 to 200 years uh, and the others uh, that we looked at the uh, graffito and the pictures and so on within 200 to 230 years but that's still over a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea. Uh, Yohannan is our only archaeological remains of a crucifixion victim and the particularly interesting thing about this is he's a crucifixion victim who had been reburied in an ossuary. He'd been crucified, we could still see the nail uh, through his ankle bone here, uh, but then given uh, at least a semi-honourable burial which critics have sometimes denied would have happened to a crucified man and, and have said for example that Jesus having been crucified wouldn't have been buried uh, but here we have archaeological proof that at the very least a crucified person could uh, be buried in a sort of uh, honourable manner. And crucifixion is very uh, embarrassing and uh, the Alexos Graffito makes this point um, this perhaps earliest surviving depiction of Jesus is of how embarrassing his crucifixion was in that culture as the sceptical New Testament scholar Bart Ehrman says it's highly improbable that the earliest Palestinian Jewish followers of Jesus would have made up the claim that the Messiah was, crucif was crucified uh, and even less plausible that they would make up a, a, a claim about that and then attribute deity or sincerely believe that this Jesus figure had been crucified and yet come to believe that he was God, that he was divine, unless they had some pretty powerful uh, reason for so doing. Uh, as Rob Bowman says, it would never have occurred to anyone in the first century to invent a story about a crucified man as the divine saviour and king of the world. Something extreme and dramatic must have happened to lead people to accept such an idea. Jesus's empty tomb. Uh, Dan Bahat, former city archaeologist of Jerusalem, says we may not be absolutely certain that the site of the Holy Sepulchral Church is the site of Jesus's burial, but we certainly have no other site that can lay a claim nearly as weighty, and we really have no reason to reject the authenticity of this site. And a few years ago, they uh, had to renovate. Uh, the the monument inside here of the the smaller earlier church that the bigger later church is built around uh, this smaller earlier church built around the traditional site of Jesus's burial mortar recovered from the 2016 renovation was dated to as early as AD 345 uh, using something called optically stimulated luminescence about which I know nothing uh, but they dated it uh, and that supported the traditional dating of the construction of the first church of the Holy Sepulchre uh, to mark the tomb of Christ uh, to during the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, when Egeria, uh, his uh, mother, went on that pilgrimage. Uh, Frederick Hybert from the National Geographic's Archaeologist in Residence uh, said that this uh, appears uh, their renovation works gave them visible proof that the location of the tomb had not shifted through time something that scientists and historians have wondered about and you can see under the cracked marble uh, casing of the uh, the alleged tomb shelf that Jesus's body would have been laid on they took away the marble casing to restore it and here you can see the the original rock surface of what is plausibly the burial place uh, of Jesus. 
and then drawing towards the end of the presentation here um, this uh, so-called Nazareth inscription a Greek inscription on a, a slab of stone very likely written during the reign of the Emperor Claudius who dates to about AD 41 to 54 uh, so early first century and this is a proclamation that forbids under penalty of death the robbing of bodies from tombs now tomb robbery had been illegal before but this is a proclamation kind of upping the ante upping the penalty for robbing bodies from tombs and it was acquired in uh, the 19th century in uh, Nazareth so this would make sense in light of the Jewish argument that Jesus's body had been stolen by the disciples and that there's an association between Jesus and, and Nazareth and perhaps that's why this uh, is to have been uh, found there so let us summarize we can look just purely at archaeological evidence and that archaeological evidence indicates to us that Jesus son of Joseph and brother of James who was buried in Jerusalem in the first century in the middle of the first century that Jesus existed in the early to middle first century that Jesus was crucified uh, which would probably have killed him uh, that a crucifixion victim in that culture could be buried that uh, Jesus probably was buried which again indicates he was probably dead uh, in a certainly now empty uh, Jerusalem tomb just outside the first century uh, city walls that grave robbery was an offence that may have been particularly associated with Nazareth where the New Testament said that Jesus lived uh, by the middle of the first century which perhaps ties in with the controversy over the empty tomb that despite his crucifixion Jesus was considered to be divine by some people within around 50 to 175 years of his execution that in the early third century sort of 200 to 230 AD we can show that Jesus was not only held to be divine but clearly held to be divine in the Judeo-Christian sense over a century before the Council of Nicaea uh, and also we can see that the first century biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament and those are the only first century biographies of Jesus that, that exist uh, they have been repeatedly verified by archaeological discoveries relating to all sorts of things from places particular places people people's titles the material culture uh, of the time uh, all of which should encourage us to trust those gospels even on matters that we can't independently verify with the archaeology